This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast from InnoVarsity Press. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. Who is Justin Gibney? Justin Gibney is one of the founders of the Ann Campaign, one of the authors of the book, Compassion and Conviction, The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. He's a good friend of mine, along with Charlie Dates and Shobaraka and a few other people. It's, it's, he's one of the people who I turn to whenever I need some good advice and counsel. So he's a good friend, and I thought that the rest of the podcast audience should meet him and know what he's about. So you guys have like a little secret chat thing going. I mean, I don't want to overplay our relationship. Like, you know, like I'm friends with Joe Baraka. We chat, we text every day. Me and Justin chat. Tech- well, that's what it sounds like. I mean, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, he is a good source of wisdom. As the end campaign is itself disruptive. It is unapologetic about the things that they believe, their commitment to the historic teachings of Christianity. But whenever you get like people who take their Christian faith seriously, there's kind of a stereotype of the political issues that they might be called to address. The Ann campaign cares about religious liberty and things like the sanctity of life. But it also says, well, let's look at the immigrant and the poor and police reform and all of these other things in a way that I find charitable. And this is not a matter of tone policing. Maybe at least I don't think it is. I will see stuff and say, well, I agree with that. And sure, everything that you said was like true, but the collective weight of the way that you said it drips with animus that I think sometimes pushes up against the bonds of Christian charity. The Ann campaign is intentional about its voice. What is the most fruitful way to engage in the work for justice in our society? And this is season two. Justin Gibney saw the problem and he built something. We're about this. All of y'all who are about this, come with it. Sometimes people might not be courageous enough to be the first person, but they're courageous enough to be the second person or the 10th person or the 20th person. He is an example of like what courage can look like when a Christian sees a problem and does more than just tweet about it. When I first entered into politics, I had graduated from law school, uh, moved to, from Nashville to Atlanta, and I was working at a law firm. But I had this group of close friends, man. Some of them I went to law school with, some other brothers that just from around, some Morehouse cats, some Howard cats. And we used to just come together and talk about politics. Like we would talk about politics or we would talk about sports. You know something? I was today years old when I found out that you had a law degree. <laughs> I didn't even know Are that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you never mentioned it. And you just dropped it like pretty casually. I didn't know what you was doing. I just When I, showed, when I met you, you had the end campaign up and running. And I knew you had done some political stuff. So you went to law school, you came out, you used to kick it with your people and talk about it. And then what? Yeah. And then one day I was like, man, why are we just talking about this? Like, why are we being so academic about it? We're all able. Let's get into the game. And then uh, there was a mayoral race coming up. 
So what we did was we just researched all the candidates. We literally did memos on the different candidates. There was a state senator who really stood out for, uh, to us, who was uh, Mayor Kasim Reed. And, bro, we just went to his office and we're like, hey, we'd like to help out. And so from there, I mean, this I think the brother, we were at like 1% in the polls, man. It was real early. It was like over a year before the uh, the vote. And we were just going, you know, southwest Atlanta, going door to door. So we started there and then we, you know, the campaign went on. Then we were doing debate prep. I mean, I got to see every side of a campaign and I got to see the real grassroots side of campaigning. And that's really how I got into game. So after he won, because I had, you know, so much experience through that, uh, through the, the initial campaign, I just started running campaigns and all that Wait, stuff. You went from 1% until he won? Yeah, he won. By 714 votes, brother. The person who you decided to help was at 1% in the polls. Yeah, one or two, something like that. And then he 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 won. He won. And then after that, that that just opens the door. People who aren't in politics don't know how this works. So you just started volunteering. You worked your way up through the ranks. They won. So what happens after that? Like, do other politicians see the campaign and they get interested in you? Like, what happens? Kind of. So, you know, I was still at the law firm, so I didn't really have the time to, you know, I wasn't trying to work full time, but I was trying to get the experience. Right. So I like they say, man, I lost the whole summer really just working, you know, whenever I got off work and whatever, I had some extra time on the weekends. I was just doing that work. And then through a through campaigns, you're going to meet other candidates who are running for other stuff. You're going to meet the folks in the grassroots community. You're going to meet folks who are going to run two, three years later. So once you run and get in those circles, then people kind of know you and they're like, hey, man, you were pretty sharp. Can you help me out? And that's just kind of how it goes. And so what was there another campaign that you did immediately? Did you take some time off? Man, I think for, you know, the first eight years, it was always something, Uh, you know, once people, you know, like they say, good workers are hard, hard to find. And once people find somebody who's willing to do the hard stuff and not just show up when the cameras are there you're going to find some work. And so, yeah, there are always opportunities with different candidates. I got to do some later on. I got to do some uh, referendums for the city of Atlanta. And it was just it was, you know, after that first uh, campaign, it was ongoing. I mean, there was rarely a time when I wasn't involved with the campaign or something like that. What was the most surprising part that you discovered once you got like into the nitty gritty of politics? What's, what shocked you? The biggest lesson I learned from a campaign, and I'll say this, anybody who really wants to be in politics and not just talk about it on Twitter, join like a local campaign. You'll learn every part of the city. You'll learn the business folks, the grassroots folks, all that. That's Let me give that piece of advice. But the number one thing I learned and number one benefit I got from it was understanding and a lot of my mentors who were more grassroots folks, understanding there's a difference between intellect and political smarts, right? So I came out of law school, you know, you took some Uh, political science classes, you think you know everything. And they were very clear, like, nah, you don't know everything. You got a lot to learn. Uh, And I did. And and thankfully, I was kind of of the mindset to listen to that. Uh, And I learned a lot that I just had to learn on the ground that I wasn't going to learn in law school. I wasn't going to learn in political science class. I just had to be out on the ground. And I think that was the number one lesson that I learned, you know, from politics. Did it make you more cynical that change could be brought about? Or did it give you more hope that... um you know, really getting into it can bring about uh, a real shift in things. Oh, yeah. It gave me hope, especially when you're working on a local level. You see things change. Right. You see, you know, I've had to count votes. Right. So when I worked for the mayor, if we were trying to pass something big, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, legislation that has million dollar implications, multi million dollar implications. If you count the votes right and you put in the work, you can get it passed. 
So we gave, I mean, I certainly had hope because I saw stuff moving. I saw the community getting better uh, just from my, you know, from the perspective of my job. Well, was there like a particular, like, I know you, maybe you can't say, but maybe you can't. Is there like a particular piece of legislation or something that happened? You feel like I was proud that I was a part of this. Yeah. So when they decided to, to build a new stadium in Atlanta, we did a community benefits agreement or a community benefits um, agreement with the community. And it was tough, man, because, you know, we had we I think it was a committee of 24, 25 people, you know, pastors from the community, you know, community organizers and all that. And we had to all get on one page within five months or or this wouldn't be built and the the benefit wouldn't go to the community. So we had I kind of facilitated a five month uh, process of getting this community benefits agreement done. Uh, and we got everybody on the same page. I had to count the votes on that day and it ended up passing. I mean, you know, and so you're talking about, you know, folks getting job training to act within the community, to actually help build the stadium. All that stuff happened and the community still kind of benefited from it. And I, and I played not the only role. I mean, there was some uh, we had a great team, but I played a pretty big role in that. Because usually when you're talking about stadiums and all that, there's no community benefits agreement. There's no nothing you're knocking down. You know, uh, it's just adding to the gentrification. And I think Atlanta really went out of its way to do it differently. So to, and not perfectly, but differently. And so I think uh, that was one of my best experiences. So how how did your faith influence the, the way in which you got, you got in, involved in politics and um, the people who you chose to support? So I'm going to be honest with you, bro. Initially, it didn't. Uh, initially I got in and faith wasn't really even a part of the conversation. I think the, the reason I got in initially, number one was the competition. When I stopped, you know, after college was over and I stopped playing football, I was missing like the rush of competition. I think one of the first reasons, and it was not the best reason to do it, but one of the first reasons I got into politics was to get that, that competitive rush back. And it gave me that, but it Hold took on. me some time. I'm oh, sorry. One second. Just once again, I'm the worst friend. in You the history are. Of time. You are. You played college football? Come on, man. Do we do we know no. one another? <laughs> no, we don't, apparently. <laughs> I We've never talked about this. Where did you play? I played at Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt you University. played at Vandy? In what years? I played from 99 to 02. So I played with Jay Cutler and all them cats. So let me see. What years? I almost, matter of fact, here, here's a crazy thing. I was almost at Vanderbilt with you at the same time. Wow. I would have graduated in 98 and they was recruiting me, but I tore three ligaments in my knee my junior year coming into my senior year. And then they kind of fell back. And so it's really interesting. Had I never gotten hurt, I probably wouldn't have been saved. So we wouldn't have been boys anyway. But, <laughs> but well, we might have been boys. Uh, might have been boys. It might have been, been, been a different relationship than the end campaign. But um, in 98, I really wanted to go to Vandy because I had my grades. My grades were on point. And they had to, like, if you had a 20 or higher on the SAT, then you could kind of go to Vanderbilt and, you know, it was you could be in the SEC but still get a good education. Yep. What position did you play? Safety. Okay. I was a linebacker. We would have we might we might have caused some problems. Yeah, man. I would tell you, though, I saw this man. Sorry. They don't like, people are going to say, why is this in a podcast? Because I care about sports. Yeah. I was at a Vandy spring game in, like, 97, 98, going into my senior year. And I saw this dude get hit so hard. I said, man. I'm not sure this SEC life is for me. So God God bless you <laughs> that you were able to accomplish what I wasn't able to accomplish. But anyways, you were at Vanderbilt. You finished playing football. You were looking for competition. You jumped into politics. And then what happened? 
And then as time went on and I was running campaigns, I began to see that a lot of my friends and folks who I knew either wanted to run or wanted to get in, into politics, it was like an assumption that they would have to surrender some of their biblical values, right? Because this is a very progressive space. So if you really wanted to run, it was like, man, I'm not going to be able to talk about that sanctity of life stuff. I'm not going to be able to talk about the Christian sexual ethic. And in my head, I'm like, why is that? You know, I go to a biblical, a very biblical church. There's a lot of, you know, uh, black Christians in Atlanta that have more socially conservative uh, views on certain issues. And I'm like, man, why is it that everybody on my on my side of town and in my um, community got to run like we're in Midtown? When we have a community with people who actually agree with us on these issues, why is that happening? And I began to just see that as far as the church being organized on those particular issues, it just wasn't there. The organization wasn't there. So even though the kind of secular progressive part of Atlanta was smaller, it was better financed and it was better organized. And and because of that, they kind of controlled the reward and punishment mechanism in politics. And nobody was pushing, you know, nobody was really pushing back. And I was like, man, there's there's something that's not right about that. So I ended up going to the Democratic National Convention as a delegate in 2012 and 2016. And especially in 2012, I just came back like, man, I got to I can't live like this. Uh, there was one thing that happened in particular in 2012. This was in Charlotte. And so we're we're, we're in the we're, we're in the delegation. We're with everybody, you know, from the different states. And they do a voice vote on whether to keep the phrase God given rights in the in the platform uh, and the voice for it means whoever's loudest is going to decide whether they keep it in or take it out. And the folks that wanted it out were way louder than the folks that wanted it in. And it was just a crazy moment for me. And I'm like, so I left like whatever I do as a Christian, because my faith was getting stronger over this time. Like I came out of college kind of really with that funny gospel. You, I mean, you know, Vanderbilt is very progressive with its theology. I bought into that mostly because it was convenient. Um, and so as I got back, as I came to Atlanta, I pro progressively got more and more back into the word for real. Um, and so, yeah, I just decided I have to distinguish myself from this party. You know, I got people. Nobody's really representing, you know, my community on some of these issues. We care about social justice, but we also care about more order. We see how, you know, these things can further tear down our community. And so I just started kind of reaching out to anybody I knew who was political and who was a Christian. And I end up creating this group called Crucifix and Politics, uh, which in turn kind of becomes later on uh, the end campaign. So here's a question people are going to ask you, at least some of the people who listen to this. OK, you're annoyed at the Democratic Party. Why didn't you? I mean, I know the answer to this question. But I'm going to ask you. anyway. <laughs> we laughing, but I got to ask it for the people. Why didn't you just become a Republican? Man, please. I mean. <laughs> Nah, I shouldn't say it that way. But no, I mean, I say yeah, that in like, just, but it was like, it's important there was like no the concern. It wasn't, it wasn't really even an option, right? Like it's not, there are plenty of things that I disagree with on that end. And there was no, you know, there was no outreach. There was no like, hey, come over here. It was like, unless you're going to be exactly like us, then there's no, there's no real even conversation, you know? And that's one of the things that the reason I said that, because that's really one of the issues, right? Some people will say, well, if you care about these things, you want to, it's because like, there isn't real, really a conversation, at least as I experienced it, about this real desire to care about the issues affecting our community and care about these other things. It's like, 
it's not just a set of policies that oftentimes we see. It's a certain narrative about America that you tend to want that tends to be pushed upon us. And that narrative just doesn't fly in black and brown communities, or at least a lot of black and brown communities. So you find yourself then kind of like for different reasons alienated from both groups. Now, I will say that it seems like a significant number of black people will just say, well, I'm just going to have to make do with kind of take doing whatever the Democratic Party wants to do. What gave you kind of the intestinal fortitude or the courage to say, I'm not just going to accept these things. I'm going to fight for something more. So like what what was it that gave I mean, because like you're not the only person who's seen this kind of cognitive dissonance between saying there's certain things about the Democratic Party I like, certain things that I don't like. So what made you say, well, I'm not just going to accept this. I'm going to try to build something. Was there? I mean, I know you talk about the moment in 2012, but what was it about like who you were that led you to do that? I think it was the timing and I think it was just my calling. Right. It, it again, it happened right as I was really, you know, getting very serious about my faith. And, and so that, along with the call, made me say, man, why are we take I felt I felt like my people were being disrespected. Right. So on one end, you have the disrespect coming from the Republican Party. No concern, you know, almost no concern about civil rights, no conversation about racial justice. But then when I go into these progressive spaces, you know, they're cool with the trappings of the faith. But if you really start, start talking about the sanctity of life or anything like that, they're going to cut that off real quick. And I felt that was disrespectful. Um, and I think it's just my general disposition. <laughs> you know, when I feel disrespected, I'm like, no, nah, I'm not I'm not just going to take that. Right. We're going to have to have a you're going to have to have a conversation with me about it. And you're going to have to deal with how my community uh, expresses itself and what we believe on these issues. And it just wasn't happening. And I didn't you know, I didn't feel like I could sit there and be a part of it and not say something. See, that's why me and you get along, even though we both played college football and we didn't know that. (laughs) And um, you you didn't know that. And I didn't know. Did you know I played college football? Yeah, we talked about it. I thought we had talked about it. I mean, I was I don't even really claim it because it was like Division three. So maybe I just saw that you look like you might have played real football. And so I didn't want to come for you. <laughs> but one of the things I think that while me and you where me and you get along is we have that similar kind of disposition where you're just not going to disrespect me. That's what this disru- this is about. Right. Yeah. That we that we reject this kind of simplistic binary. So. <clears throat> how did you get connected? If I'm, I don't want to go too far into the weeds. How did you and Michael Ware get connected? So. Well, number one, there's not a lot of Democratic strategists who stand up on those issues. Right. Most folks are like, hey, and there's great folks. And I don't want to act like we're, you know, we're just some, you know, uh, elite folks or something like that. But there's just not a lot of folks who who will say something about it. So I think people just were like, man, y'all need to meet for a while. And then he came to Emory to do a panel. And I went up to Emory to, to kind of go meet him. And, and I think that's how we met. And so how has it resonated kind of in the black community, what you've tried to do with the AND campaign, um, as you've kind of gone to people and pitched this vision of combining social action with these um, more order, or as you say, in a Christian context, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Yeah, I mean, you know, as far as the black church goes, for those biblical churches, I mean, it's been very well received. Um, I mean, if you look at, you know, you look at some of the folks we connect with in Atlanta, it's just a, it's just refreshing. Because it's almost like people assumed it wasn't an option, right? You almost assume it's not an option to say, I care about social justice or more order. And so most folks say, well, if I'm going to choose one, I'm going to choose social justice because obviously we come from that that exodus motif. You know what I mean? And uh, but when when people see a framework that says, no, you can do both. It's been big. 
And, you know, so I, you know, I, I preach at different churches, go speak at different churches in, in, in our community. And it's been well accepted to talk about issues in a way that's compassionate, but also doesn't make you throw away those convictions. And so I think it's opened up a lot of eyes uh, and, and, it, and it's been good, man. Um, you know, it's it's you know, the and campaign purposefully starts from that kind of traditional black church context. Now, we are in, we're inclusive, you know, of, of, of other folks in other contexts. But that's where we start, because I think some folks, especially majority Christians, need to come out of their comfort zone and, and, and kind of start from a different perspective. One of the things that I've noticed as kind of the I've been with, you know, this organization like two years and it's not just the end campaign. Maybe, maybe it is because a lot of us are kind of affiliated with it. It seems like they're just kind of a new generation of younger black Christians who care about issues of justice, social justice and are willing to be unapologetic by it. But but by doing it within explicit within an explicitly orthodox or confessional theological framework, how have you? I mean, which makes it more complicated because it used to be if you think about like the public binary that used to exist in society, mm-hmm. I would say they had like black conservatives who were kind of basically repeating the talking points of majority culture, who were downplaying issues of social justice, yeah. and they were often lifted up by kind of evangelicals like this is the black person you need to listen to, and then the black community would look at this person and kind of go sideways, and then on the other side it'd be kind of the more progressive strand of the black Christian tradition. And it would be pretty clear on justice, but it feels like now, like this is a disruptive part of the end campaign. Now it feels like you're moving into a space where people who share your theological convictions don't often inhabit. Someone is wondering like, how has the progressive side of the black Christian tradition, like responded to having somebody else who's in that same arena talking about the same things, from a different kind of framework when they've kind of historically had that lane to themselves, not even historically, because you you see it in kind of the, the civil rights movement, you know, you see some, a variety of voices, but like, how has that part been received as, as you bumped up against them in those spaces? Yeah. Well, I'll first say, I think, I think you're right. It is broader than the AND campaign. Uh, we, you know, yeah. our leadership council has a lot of those folks that you're talking about, but it is a little bit broader, but people are missing this movement, man. I mean, The beauty of it is you have folks who can understand the importance of that kind of social justice, civil rights background and that that excess motif and how it's played into the black community, but can also be very orthodox and understand the doctrine and explain it and be great communicators. Right. So when you're talking about people like yourself, you're talking about Charlie Dates, you're talking about Lisa Fields, you're talking about Jackie Hill Perry. These are great communicators. And I'll tell you this, Esau, I know politicians and political folks from all over the nation, none of them as a group are as strong of communicators as this group. So something is happening. Like it's a big deal. And it's just awesome, man. Folks who can go into different um, contexts and speak uh, and speak to different groups in a way that that resonates. Uh, I think it's something that's just growing. But as far as the progressive side of it and, and the progressives in the black church, it's been an interesting response. And I know I know, you know, this, too. Yeah. I don't I don't think a lot of people know what to make of it. And because it is more orthodox, the assumption is that it's got to be evangelical, right? That it's got to be it's got to kind of be white centered. And it's like, nah, you know, this, this is stuff my grandfather uh, taught me. Right. Church, of, you know, Church of Living God, uh, PGT yeah. Nation. Um, and so that's kind of been the response is, oh, this must they're just trying to be like the white evangelicals. And it's like you, you're not listening. <laughs> you're not listening to what we're saying because uh, this is very different. 
Um, and so that's kind of been the initial reaction by some. And then others, there's, there's been an appreciation of what we're trying to do. Uh, I spoke at Morehouse not too long ago. And, uh, you know, I got a, you know, and that can be a very kind of uh, progressive place when it comes to theology, but got a, a really good response by folks who just appreciated you know, the emphasis on social justice, but also saying, look, look, we can't have social justice without absolute truth. So something's got to give. Yeah. What I was going to say is I've noticed the same thing too, that like, it, it isn't like some, I mean, obviously there's disagreements, but sometimes the beef between black progressives and people who are more traditional isn't always as kind of um, doggy dog as you see kind of like the white mainline church and the white evangelical church. But what I would say is that like, I've seen one or two responses. Like one of them is, I'm glad that like you're seeing what you're seeing in your context. So that allows people to hear it. So like they, the people who are really concerned with the message getting out, they're just happy that someone's talking about it. Mm -hmm. The other one, and I was thinking about this. I remember we were at the Jude 3 event like last year and there was like a whole lot of discussion around like Donald Trump and internalizing white supremacy. And I remember saying, like, you know, it's possible for black people to come to these conclusions of their own, right? It's possible for a black person to believe things about the scriptures that are different that doesn't result simply as a re repeating of white talking points. Mm -hmm. And part of what happened with, with, with the book that I was trying to write is I was actually trying to get back to kind of the beginnings of the black church in its own voice. And it is true. And obviously, you don't have to necessarily repeat what the first generation of people said because that, because that makes them, like, infallible. But there is a long tradition of black Christianity that has combined like traditional beliefs about who Jesus was and what in the scriptures as in some sense um, normative for Christian life and practice. And for that very reason, concern for the poor. And so I just seen that like it's been really interesting. The other thing is like even when you're writing when and like you started to do it and other people, not just in the end campaign, but more broadly, even in the public square, like in the newspapers and the magazines you're starting to see this voice appear more and more. And because we're coming out of this black church tradition, it has always been kind of somewhat political. We are giving more space to talk about these things from a theological perspective. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, I, I have, I have seen that. Um, I, I think there's more of an opening to say there's a credibility, right? There's a credibility with what we're expressing because we acknowledge and emphasize the social justice side of it. There's more credibility to talk about the moral order side or the or the you know more traditional value side of it. And that's what I want a lot of white evangelicals to understand. Because you don't talk about justice, because you don't do justice, and, and this is a broad statement. Um yeah. but in general, because that, you know, the majority church has not done justice, they're lose they don't have the credibility to talk about these other issues. And I think you see that credibility in in kind of the movement that we've been talking about. So folks will give you space to talk about it because they know you're serious about justice. Like you can't come to Atlanta and say, you know, the folks in the end campaign here don't care about just I mean, we're doing, you know, low income housing crisis advocacy and really putting it on the line. So that does give us a credibility that we wouldn't have otherwise if we were coming from, you know, where the majority is in their perspective. So if you had to say that, like, 10 years from now, the Ann campaign was wildly successful. Like what kind of difference would it have made in the church and then maybe in the wider culture? I would say generally that people would have, the church would have a, a more, some people in the church would have a more fleshed out framework of what orthopraxy and orthodoxy is and how they come together. Like how does the love and truth of the gospel, how does the compassion and conviction of the gospel come together? If the body of Christ, 
in a significant way has a better understanding of that and how to apply it to the civic space and to the cultural space, then we won. I mean, if if there's a kid in Montgomery, Alabama, who's saying, man, I want to engage culture, I want to engage politics. And me seeing the and campaign shows me that I can do it with being faithful to, 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 to doctrine and also, you know, loving justice and doing it right. And then a kid in Lincoln, Nebraska says the same thing because of the and campaign. I see that I can do this in a faithful way. That's it. I mean, uh, we also want to change policy. We want to do all that. But really, we, we want to help folks engage more faithfully. So what is the like the, the hardest part about doing this job week in, week out? Like what exhausts you about being in the, being like leading the end campaign? It, it's just tough, man. You know, people don't I've been in I've been in politics for a long while, but I think people don't understand that most of politics and most of advocacy is not glamorous. And so when they, they get excited about the end campaign, they get excited about what we're saying. Um, and then sometimes it's like, man, but I want to. I want to change that policy today, you know, and it just doesn't happen like that. And so one of the frustrating parts is helping people to understand kind of uh, managing expectations of how this works. Now, we have a sense of urgency. Nobody's waiting. Nobody's trying to be incremental about things. But you do have to have a, a kind of mature understanding that it all doesn't always happen at once. And it is kind of a long suffering and perseverance plays a huge role in that. And we see it throughout history. That's one of the hard parts. I think the other hard part, especially in today, it being so polarized, is people have gotten to the place that unless your unless your rhetoric and your uh, tactics are extreme, then you don't care, right? Unless you're unless you're really willing to say the most extreme things about the other side or take the most extreme measures, then you must not really care. Uh, and sometimes that can be hard, um, but but you again, you just kind of have to manage those expectations and, and and point them to the Bible to say, man, there's certain things we can't do. We, you know, the cause and the spirit of the cause are are very, are both very important. Right. And so if you have a good cause, but you're willing to get it in a way that is not faithful, then you've ruined, you know, you've ruined something. You've done it the wrong way. I've noticed that. I remember one of the things that you said all of the time is there's a difference. I mean, there's kind of one of the ways which the end campaign can be stereotypes to say that we sit in the middle of both parties right mm -hmm. that, you know we and then we wanted to critique both sides but i don't think that you're saying that the both the both sides are wrong in the exact same proportion on every issue i think that what you're saying you can correct me is that part of being committed to the kingdom of god first is seeing the inadequacies in different ways in both parties and sometimes it feels like because um, you know, the current administration seems so oppressive and so horrible to saying anything bad about the Democrats seems like, oh no, we got to, you know, take mm -hmm. care of this first. So how do you balance like, or how do you advocate for this willingness to critique both sides, even though you're not saying they're the same? How do you manage to critique both sides in this context where any, any criticism, in particular the Democratic Party, is seen as like some real betrayal? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm not worried about folks saying what's betrayal, right? So I don't have a, a, a level of loyalty to secular progressivism or the Democratic Party to the point where uh, I really am going to change what I do because of what folks on that side are saying. You, dude, I, I've I've done a lot of free work. Me and my wife were going knocking door to door in Florida uh, a couple of the weekend before uh, um, Obama was elected. You know what I mean? So I put in my work uh, and that's OK. But what I promised myself a long time ago, really four years ago, 
that I would not have a Trump centered public witness. And what that means, that doesn't mean that I'm not only am I, you know, I'm going to um, address him. I'm going to uh, when I think he does things wrong, I'm going to say that. But I'm also not going to center him in everything I do. Right. Uh, This election is important, but there's other things that need to be said. And so my whole point of view is to have credibility to say something to the right. I got to be able to say something to the left, too. I got to have to say what needs to be said. And if both uh, parties or both kind of ideological tribes are doing something that undermines human dignity, they both need to be addressed. And one of the one of the ways that I put it is, you know, if I have an infection in my left leg that's a little more advanced than infection in my right leg, I still got to address the infection of my right leg. Right. Because one of them can still kill me. And, and I think it's just a rhetorical device where we say any time that you you know, uh, criticize both sides. It's, it's false equivalency. That's not necessarily true. There's a lot of things that I can criticize at the same time. That's not saying that they're equal, but that's one way of, of certain groups saying, well, just don't criticize us at all because the other side is worse. The other side might be worse, but you know, when we're talking about the lives of the unborn, when we're talking about churches and religious freedom and how folks are being treated in, in that space. And if you come, man, nobody, nobody who really is paying attention to what's going on in urban America can say that progressive policy has just been great for everybody. And so it needs to be critiqued. Um, and we need to be willing to do that on our side and the other. So what then made you go from being someone who was doing like street level activism, policy change to putting it in a book came into this election? What made you decide to sit down and, and write compassionate conviction? I think one of the biggest things were, was that that's what really pastors were, were asking for. So, you know, I was on the speaking circuit. You're on that circuit. And when I went to different churches and really went to Christian universities too, uh, leaders, Christian faith leaders were asking for something that they could use to give them, give the framework that the AND campaign had come up with to, you know, their parishioners, to their students. It, they just saw it as something they really needed. I mean, I was talking to pastors and we mentioned this in the book who had people fighting in the church, like literally fighting over the 2016 election in the church. And so they were just folks were just like, we need a framework to help people understand this. And so we we, we started off, we were going to make it. And this is kind of why, you know, we came out with the three authors. Initially, we were going to make it a curriculum. Um, and then we, you know, talked to Ivy Press and they're like, nah, make it a, a book. You know, it'll it'll get out there better. And so we created a book and that's really how we came about it. It was it was, you know, we wanted to give a tool to the church, a resource, a resource to the church and the faith leaders to help them through this moment. And how how has it how has it been been received and been used in the churches so far? I know it's only been out since this summer, but what have you seen the impact of it? Be? It's been great. I mean, I, I just uh, came back from Virginia where there was a, a black church and a white church that came together to throw an event. And both of them were going over the book, you know, with people in their church. Uh, getting calls from friends here in Atlanta, brothers I know who are you know going to use the book with their church. It, it it looks like it's serving its purpose again, which is to be a resource for the church and how to apply uh, your faith to to politics. Because too many Christians kind of you leave church and then you can either be a staunch conservative or a staunch uh, progressive and you don't really make the connection. And I think compassion and conviction is helping Christians make the connection and, and just do politics in a better way. So as you as you look kind of hurtling towards this 2020 election, which feels like a raging dumpster fire and a bunch of am I allowed to say that I can say a raging dumpster fire. (laughs) It seems like a mess and it seems like Christians 
almost seem to be as caught up in kind of the, like you talk about the continual rhetorical escalation to where like if you're a Christian, you're a Trump supporter. I don't know how people, I mean like if you're not, a, if you, you can't be, how do you, do you see like the church actually finding its voice anytime between now and November um, in a way that is helpful? Or do you think we're going to continue just to follow um, kind of the talking points in the left and the right? I mean, I know you have compassion and conviction and you're trying to mm-hmm. kind of put like some some clarity in it. But are you hopeful that the church can find its voice? I really do. And I'm not I'm not an alarmist. And I've lived through, you know, every election when people say this election feels different. And this is the but this one, I'm sorry, this one feels different. The country feels different. And I am genuinely concerned for our democracy um, in a way that I haven't been even in 2016 or before that. So do you feel like, am I overreacting? So like, talk me off the ledge. Maybe I'll, let me, let me rephrase. Am I overreacting by being terrified by this election, given some of the rhetoric that's going around, around the nature of democracy itself? That's question number one. And question number two is what can the church do about this? Like this, this seem like this shaking of our foundations. So uh, to answer the first question, no, you're, you're not crazy. I, I'm, I'm very concerned, too. Um, the question is, how do we respond to that? Uh, I think there's a, you know, for somebody not to be concerned in this moment, if you look at what's going on, especially since Ruth Bader Ginsburg just passed away and how people are responding to that. Look at the violence in the street and how progressive and conservative leaders are finding ways to justify it. Um, you got You have to be concerned. Because it seems that so many people are at a point where they're saying, we can't resolve this. We're giving up on each other. And you see that even in Christian circles where, man, if you don't feel exactly what I feel on, on my issue, then you're, done, you, you know, you're a lost cause. And I see us giving up in the, on each other in the church, but it's even worse maybe outside of it. And that's the scariest part, because when you give up on somebody else being able to be reasonable, uh, to be able to be redeemed, then the only answer is really violence, right? There, there is no reasoning with people. There's no, you know, connecting and, and reconciling and all that. It's just, it's really violence is the answer. And we're seeing that in the street. So people should be worried. Again, the question is, how do we respond to that? Um, do we respond by being even more partisan? Or do we respond by something that you and I have talked about, which is moral imagination, which moral imagination and allows you not to just be caught up in that moment, not to be caught up what's happened historically but to say, OK, what could be if I react differently? So if Christians were to say, yeah, I'm going to be serious, I'm going to take a position on issues. So one thing nobody can say about the AND campaign, they can say we uh, you know, don't come down on one party or the other hard enough. You can't say that we don't take positions on issues. But when you take a push- position on an issue, does that mean that you have to take everything else that comes along with it on that side? Right. So if I say, man, I care about voting rights, I'm going to be about voting rights and we're going to stand up for that. Does that mean I have to take everything else that comes with the progressive agenda? I say no. But see, it takes moral imagination to do that. If I say I want to care about and this is part of this answers the second question of what the church can do. If I say I care about sanctity of life, let's stand 10 toes down. You know what I mean? Flat footed when it comes to sanctity of life, but also reframe the issue differently. Does that mean once I say I care about sanctity of life that I have to agree with everything in the conservative side of the uh, side of the aisle? No. But you have to have a moral imagination to do that. You have to have moral imagination to say, okay, when it comes to the sanctity of life, they say either you're about women's health or you're about children. Well, you know, the AND campaign says, no, we're about both. 
But unless you're willing to push back, you're not going to have the moral imagination to say, I can stand up on this and do it differently. And that's really all the end campaign is saying. We're not saying find some mushy middle ground so nobody gets mad at you. First off, that don't stop nobody from getting mad at you. Number two, that doesn't get anything done. We're saying whatever we choose is not going to be based on some ideology that is broken. It's going to be based on the framing, the way that we get it from the gospel. That's what we're saying. But you can't do that, especially in this moment, if you don't have moral imagination. And so that's why it's frustrating to see Christians like, man, make a choice now. And you got to you have to choose a side. Yeah, you might have to vote and you have to take a position on, on the issues and you shouldn't be equivocating on that. But when you stand on those issues, does it mean you accept everything else that's going on there? Are you or are you willing to, to step out and say, no, I'm framing this differently? And so I want people to see there's a different way to look at it. That's not always easy to do in the urgency of the moment. I think that, um, to be honest, we are in the middle of kind of the undressing of Christians' inability to have moral imagination. Mm -hmm. And that we have so long either just taken one or the other that even in the midst of what is clearly a crisis, we don't know how to put down our weapons and really point towards something bigger. And so there's this, sorry, this is, I'm going to go full Bible for about five seconds. It's like when Jesus came to Israel, he, um, and they asked him why he tells the parables. Who quotes this passage from Isaiah? He said that, you know, they'll be ever hearing, but never understanding it, forever seeing, but never perceiving, lest they turn with their hearts and I might heal them. And if you go back to Isaiah, the whole point of Isaiah was you get to a certain point where the only solution that there is it's on the other side of judgment, right? And you've had friends who like this. You said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And then they want to keep doing it. And you say, you know what? It's going to have to hurt more before you're willing to listen to me. And I really do think that, like, we have not reached the bottom of the humiliation of the American church. And it's going to have to be to it gets so utterly painful that the whole thing burns to the ground. And then out of the ashes of that, it's the people who can have that moral imagination who's going to point the way forward. And that's the reason why I was I was willing to support the end campaign, because it was, for me, at least an attempt to say, here is what can be different than just choosing the crumbs that was left up, that was that's kind of left over for the people of faith after the politicians have gotten what they got. So that's at least what I think is happening. And, I, and I'm, I'm not, I am not hopeful for this election. And when I say that, I mean that, like, we're, we're what, a, a 33, a 40, 40, 20 country as far as Republican, Democrat, like 40% of the country is going to vote for each candidate and we're going to be divided after November. And that 40% is going to still control significant segments, significant states. And so there's this real long term generational city by city, community by community, state by state transformation that is going to be in place regardless of what happens in November if we kind of make it to the other end of that without pulling each other apart. Sorry, that was me on my hobby horse. That was no, that's, that's good though, because the, the thing that it points out is everything. And that's what I didn't, I meant to say, but I didn't say initially, everything ain't riding on this one vote. There's a lot of stuff going on in culture. There's a lot of stuff going on locally, the low income housing crisis that we could have a say in that the church in a nonpartisan way could have a say in. There's a lot of things going on next door uh, on a state level that we can do to combat some of the madness that's going on in our society. You're, the whole of your public witness is not connected 
to just this one vote. This one vote's important, but it's not everything. And that's what people are failing to see. The other thing I would say is, you know, in this moment, I think you're right. It's going to be the people who have moral imagination and the people who have courage. Um, and one thing that I'm always I'm worried I'm weary of anybody, especially in the Christian community who are influencers, who never says anything against their, you know, against their tribe or critiques their tribe, because it makes me think that they're looking for validation. So if you're about social justice and you never have any question about what's going on on the left with, with that, I question it. Because are you looking for their validation or are you bold enough to say something? Because what people, you know, what, what people will do is they'll say, well, how can you criticize Republicans when the Democrats support late late term abortions? The reason that I can criticize Republicans is because what I'm saying is that conservatism is not the best response to that. It's not the most effective response to that. And in the same way, how can you critique Democrats when Trump is so bad? The reason that we can do it is because we're saying secular progressive progressivism is not the best response to Trump. It's not the best way to go against him if that's what you want to do. That's what we're saying. We're not saying that you should accept it, but we critique both sides because neither side is the best way to get to the truth and the solutions that we want. That doesn't mean we won't work with people on one side or the other, but it does mean we have to make a bold statement that there's a different way to do things. And if you're not willing to critique your side, you can't tell people there's a different way to do things because you're too willing to accept or get validation from from those folks over there. I think our producer, he gets to ask one question per episode and he's been sitting on it. So this is your one question. No, I don't know if this is. Um, so I've been I've been trying to decide whether or not to ask this question, Justin, because um, in some ways this is not super not about me. Right. Yeah. But I do think I resent I, re I represent a large portion of the audience, which is I'm going to put it this way. Uh, overly sensitive white people. Um who feel like Justin, one thing that really struck me when you were talking about affirmation, like people are seeking affirmation. Um, another way of putting that is like another way of putting like the lack of affirmation is, is loneliness. Mm. It's, it's a mm. deep feeling of loneliness that you can sometimes get when you feel like you are alone in your convictions. Just to be totally frank about this, people who are privileged aren't used to that feeling, right? I struggle sometimes to like allow myself to sit in that loneliness or even to solve that problem. Right. Like, I don't, I don't know. I, sometimes I just feel very alone in like the ways that I'm reacting to a, a big public square issue. So you're saying how do people work through that loneliness of loneliness of seeing things differently? And especially for those with privilege who have never had to stand kind of by themselves. Right. So, RBG dies, right? Yeah. That's a complicated issue for us in this room, right? That's complicated on a number of levels. I felt very alone in that moment because I, I really didn't have anything I felt I could say that, that came out of who I was that I felt the inter internet would like. Right. And, and what you're arguing for is essentially that all the time. It is hard. It is hard. So one thing I would say is you don't always have to say something, but number two, I don't know. It is very hard to go through alone and we shouldn't have to go through it alone. And that's why the community that we're trying to build is so important, building a community around this this different view of politics. So so Richard, which Rich is my guy, man, I have a lot, I have a huge appreciation for him um, just from stuff that, you know, from writing and, and the way that he's helped me out. But we shouldn't have to be alone in that. We should have community in that conversation. 
you were right. There should be the Esau's who are speaking up as he's doing and all the people that we named to say we have to say something and we're here to support each other when we say it. Um, but that, again, takes each person being bold enough to say, hey, man, I got to step out there. You know, I think it's the, the Elijah situation. You do it and then you see that you're not you're not actually alone. And, and when I first met Esau, you know, a progressive Baptist church, when I first met Lisa Fields, folks like that, it was God saying, man, you, you're not alone, but you got it. You know, it's, it's y'all's time to step up and say what needs to be said. So I think that's part of it is building community. We've got to build community. So even as we step out, we're actually not alone. There, there are others with us. The other thing that uh, and this is this is something maybe to pull back so people don't, may not see the inside of like the, how these dynamics work. Everything is in for the Internet. And so there'll be times where like I like True. we'll have a text stream and we'll say, OK, should I speak into this issue? And they will say, well, what's the win? Or actually, I will say, does my competence actually allow me to speak intelligently about this issue? And so there have been mm-hmm. plenty of times where I've texted like Justin or I texted, texted the other people and I say, hey, man, should, should I write something about this? They say, nope, stay in your lane. I will go and do this. And so one of the things, so like there are plenty of times where I got opinions on stuff that I just text through it instead of tweeting through it. Or if I say, well, we'll even workshop something together. We'll say, okay, I want to say it this way. And just to say, well, no, 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 Esau, if you say it this way, you might be heard that way. And so we, we, there's a lot of sense of a cooperation and wisdom that isn't like, and, and he talked about having, like, not have a Trump, a Trump centered like timeline. I don't have like a politics centered social media feed where I have to comment on every single thing that occurs. I think where does my wisdom and expertise then allow me to speak to this issue? And so some things I just let slide. Um, because I, I might have an opinion, but I don't have an opinion. Maybe this is the scholar in me. If I say something to you, I got the receipts. It might be in, it might only be in a tweet, but beneath that tweet is three or four books. And if it's more than two or three tweets, my thing is if I'm going to do a tweet stream, I might as well write an article about it and get a couple hundred dollars. Y'all just not finna get all, and then people want to have a conversation with me on social media. Like, listen, that's called consulting. And that's a fee. So you get like a tweet and maybe two responses. Beyond that, I'm going to sit down in my office for an hour or two and write it. So I think part of it is being a part of a community of people, not just like conversating online and hoping that that's like the same thing as intelligent discourse. I mean, there's been so many issues. And it's funny, we haven't haven't talked about um, um, RBG, but like there's been so many issues that we've kind of like talked through as a group that nobody saw but us. You hit on it perfectly. Number one, you don't have to say something, but sometimes you still want to express yourself. And I think Rich Rich is kind of getting at that. You should be able to do that within community, but it doesn't necessarily have to be public. And that's why we have to create community outside of these other folks that we seem to always be searching for affirmation from. And then just knowing everybody ain't going to get it, right? Everybody's not going to come with you. That's just something you always got to live with. Hey everybody, Richard here, producer of The Disruptors. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know that you can go to ivpress.com disruptors with an E to learn more about IVP books and get 30% off all titles with free shipping. And now let's go back to the conversation. And I think this is true. You have to be really, really profoundly comfortable 
with who God calls you to be if you're going to function at all in the public square. Amen. And like, there's so many, like the, the internet is like Pavlov's dog. They can teach you the, I could, if I wanted to have like a woke Twitter feed that was just like, already, I know the exact kinds of tweets to write to appeal to a certain audience. And if I wanted man, if I wanted to make money and I want to be the black conservative who just like repeated these things, man, I would, I could just, I know it. I literally, I know how to construct the conversation. And I just had to be really, and I'm not perfect. I'm not saying anyone, I had to be really comfortable saying, I'm going to have to tell the truth as best as I can discern it and let the chips fall where they may. And I think that sometimes the internet is so loud, we can't hear the voice of God. And part of what I have to do is I have to say, how can I quiet the noise? And in order to really hear what God is doing, this is the last piece of advice. And it's the reason why I value our friendship with people like Charlie and people like show, because there aren't a lot of people like us out there. And there's a lot of people who have one or two of the other camps. And so I want to hear from this camp, I can call this person. I want to hear from this other camp, I call this other person. But it's really rare to find somebody who you can call to say, I want to talk about this issue. Mm -hmm. And I want to hear from both from a theologically coherent framework and from a framework that cares about our people and the culture. And so the other thing that I would say to somebody, if they're interested in doing this kind of work and keeping their head about them, get yourself surrounded by people who want you to flourish, not people who want to make you in their image. And so you got to be comfortable with who God has called you to be. And you got to find people who can affirm that and who can support you in that call. And not just people who are going to pull you to this way or that way. Because if you're black or, or a woman or Asian American or Latino, there's tons of people who want to use your voice for their purposes and who care nothing about what God called you to do. Mm-hmm. And so at least if I can say one of the things that you can take from this podcast, or from my, even from my friendship, is like those kinds of relationships, if you can find them, are invaluable. Man, you, you just spoke a word there. I mean, the only thing that I would add to it is that find the, the motivation to do that. And so for me, the motivation to stand up, you know, uh, to folks on the right that say anything justice oriented is Marxism. You know, to stand up to folks on the left who say anything dealing with traditional values is bigotry and, and white centered. You just got to, man, you got to have a motivation. And so for me, I think about my grandfather, who was a civil rights, um, uh, a civil rights era preacher. I think about the elders in the church, you know, the sisters that say, man, they see me going to speak at Princeton University or something like that and are so proud, but have an expectation that I'm going to do it right. Right. To have an expectation that I'm going to go up there and represent them and and they know that I'm going to say what needs to be said. And I think for us. To find and you, you know, you talked about your mother, you talked about your old church in the book. I could tell that's your motivation to say, man, I'm again, I'm gonna stand flat footed, ten toes down, and just tell it like it is. That that was that was like I was talking about that. When I wrote when I wrote Reading While Black and I wrote the first chapter, I was I mean, I'm not gonna lie, that whole chapter, I was in my feelings. Yeah, and I can tell this is what I, it was good. I was like, look, I know, and people this is what I'm saying. People be trying to tell me what black is, like I ain't black. Like, I didn't grow up in, like, listen, I got the receipts. Yeah. I grew up in an all-black neighborhood. I say we had, all, we were so black, we had the one, my football coach did, we had a defensive end who was white, and he just made him the kicker. <laughs> He's, no tryout, no nothing. No tryout. He's like, you're going to kick. He was horrible. But he was our kicker. And what I'm saying is, 
I grew up in a community, and so I knew the culture. I grew up in black churches. I was I was from I was from a generation of black pastors, and I knew about what you call orthodoxy and orthopraxy. We didn't have words to it. It was just called Christianity. Yep. And so now I'm walking these streets. I'm I'm in all of these lectures. I'm in all of this stuff, and you telling me this is what the black church is. It's like I lived it. And so when I wrote this chapter called "The South Got Something to Say," it was really saying the black Christian tradition needs to have its own space. And I knew. I knew when I wrote that there's going to be people who didn't like it. I knew it. And one of the things that's been surprising to me is like you plant this flag and if you tell people will gather around it. So the, the shocking thing about this book was like, I mean, man, I thought when I write reading my black and people read chapter one, they're going to kill me. <laughs> Cause I was like, said the thing that you're not supposed to say, yeah. but I've been really, I've been really surprised by the fact that people, even people who disagree, like they don't share my theological framework. They say, well, at least what he is saying is true. And so I think that telling the truth creates its own coalition. And so if you want to have some people around you who share the same things that you share, you got to sometimes say it with your chest and let the chips fall where they may. I yeah, mean, you, I, you said exactly right, man. Let the chips fall where, where, where they may. But but like I said, I think having that motivation and that you shared, it's in your heart. Like you don't have a choice but to do it. And what you'll realize, a lot of the cool kids on on social media are really afraid. Right. They're looking for validation from groups that just aren't biblical. And so their witness is limited. And like you said, it's those few people who said, man, I'm about social justice, but I ain't got to prove that to you. You know, I don't have to copy all your rhetoric and say everything you want me to say to prove that to you. I care about the sanctity of life. But guess what? I don't have to go about it like Republicans go about it. And I'm not going to try to prove that to you. I'm just going to try to speak to the people who feel what I'm saying, who need to hear it and hopefully inspire some people and embolden some people to do the same thing. But if you don't have that motivation of, man, I'm doing this for the for for Christ, I'm doing this for the folks who don't have a voice, who aren't being represented in that space. I mean, that's what really motivates me. And I can tell you got that same same feel. Every time I go onto a stage, I think about the people who don't get to be on the stage. Come on now. And I remember when I would see a black person who would come and I'll be singing in the audience. And I said, I hope this black person say it like it's happening. Yep, exactly. And so I feel like I got a responsibility. I'm talking about like there's this this is like old Kanye. So don't get don't come for me. When Kanye said, um, I ain't from the clan, but I brought my hood with me. Yeah. That was like that line. That's what that's like me. Like when I come and I speak, all of Huntsville is coming with me. When I speak, like the entire like Alabama and Jim Crow and all of the stuff that they did to us. I bring that energy with me because that's what I felt like. I I didn't I didn't I didn't hear people who were talking about it the way I experienced. Because those it. were the folks that never had to say. That's what I'm saying. Those, and we people, went from like, one. So this is my here's my problem, and, and I know we about to end, but this is my problem. You got a lot of folks who went from one white centered white evangelical space to another white centered space. You know, on the progressive side. And so you still have this this big space in the, in the middle, especially when it comes to the black traditional church that never had a say. So, Justin, if somebody wanted to get in contact with you, how could they find information about the Ann campaign and your book and the stuff that you got going on? Yeah, man. So you can reach out to the Ann campaign at and A-N-D campaign dot org. Uh, that you can see all our content and stuff on there. You can uh, find where to buy our book, which is Compassion and Conviction. It's the Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at A-N-D Campaign. Um, my personal Twitter handle is at Justin E. Giboney, G-I-B-O-N-E-Y. And you can find us there, man.
People get mad at me so often because I'm in this Anglican space, right? And the Anglicans get mad at me because they're like, why is he saying A, B, and C? We like it when he's talking about being sanctity of life. When he starts talking about police violence, he starts criticizing racism, then he's kind of lost. Let me tell you something. Y'all don't run this. <laughs> Y'all not paying my bills. And if whoever paying my bills, they pull the check, well, we'll do something else. I tell this story a thousand times. I was told when I was applying for jobs, they said, don't say anything until you get tenure. I was 38 at the time, tenure, seven years. I'm not gonna be quiet for seven years, but black people are dying in the street. I'm gonna say what I gotta say, and if they fire me, the Macaulay's are gonna eat. I'll go and do something else. That fire, we just can't let things be the way they're gonna be. But that's the reason why I said this, we call the disruptors. And I have other friends too, and they'll text me and they'll say, okay, Esau, I got this opinion. I'm not sure it's an opinion that I can share out loud. I don't know if this is appropriate. And like, not in the sense of being, but like, am I actually getting this right? And one of the things about the internet is you're not allowed to get things imperfectly because people would put the worst possible spin on it. So I've had friends who like texted me and said, hey, I got pushback on this. What did you think about it? And I was like, well, yeah, that was kind of problematic. <laughs> but it's not like, I'm not telling them in their face, like on the on the, on the the screen. Or you know, somebody who's close to me, and, and actually, um, I will put him, I will, I will give him a shout out in public. Dominique, Dominique Gilliard. I said something, and he could have come for me, but he like inboxed me, and he said, hey, Esau, you said A, B, and C. Did you actually mean this? I was like, well, I kind of did. But then we had like a nice little conversation we came to some kind of conclusion. But the point of it is, everything doesn't have to be a public battle. I know now that everything that I say publicly can at any point become a part of a, like a, a internet conversation. I can give up now, I keep going. Settle down, not ever knowing. Won't let my history bury me. Cause I ain't doing this just for me. And so that's the fear. And it can paralyze you. But I'm sounding off. Cause you can say, okay, I know what I can say about Ruth Gader Ginsburg that people will like. I know what I can say that this group will like, but neither one of those things capture my feelings. And if I say this third thing, then everybody's gonna get mad at me. And that's the hard part. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. We will be grateful if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. You can follow me at Esau McCauley and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at IVPress.com. We out.